Welcome to Vision Insights, a podcast series produced by Miami Lighthouse for the Blind and Visually Impaired. My name is Cameron Sisser, and I'm proud to host this series. Our guest today is a true trailblazer who has experienced a remarkable career of political leadership and civic activism. David Patterson was the first legally blind person to be sworn in as governor of a U.S. state and the first African-American governor of New York. He remains a force in politics, business, and community service, and a vocal advocate for the rights of people with disabilities. Governor Patterson, welcome to Vision Insights. Thank you. It's great to be here. So you were born in Brooklyn, New York, and suffered a serious ear infection at three months old that spread to your optic nerve, leaving you sightless in one eye and with severely limited vision in the other. Your parents decided to move to Hempstead, Long Island, because the New York City public school system chose to place you in a special education curriculum, and your parents wanted you to receive a mainstream education. As a result, you became the first student with a disability to attend Hempstead Public School. Can you describe for us what that situation was like for you and your family? Well, first of all, this story about the ear infection keeps going around, but it's really not true. And no ophthalmologist has ever seen a way that an ear infection could create the eye disease that I have, which is known as optic atrophy. And optic atrophy is um, not a significant eye disease anymore. It was scar tissue between the retina and the optic nerve. Now, the scar tissue came when babies were incubated and there was um, the uh, temperature level of the incubator was too high and it literally burned the tissue of the babies who were involved but there's no evidence that I was ever incubated. And so somebody came up with this ear infection thing that's been going around the internet for years and I can't do anything about it. But when I was school age, the Hempstead public school system did tell my mother after she searched all around the States of New York, New Jersey and Connecticut to find a venue where I would be assimilated into the class with the sighted students she told me years later that she had nothing against the special schools for the blind or the deaf or that type of thing. But she said, whoever you go to school with, it's not just reading and writing and learning arithmetic. It's learning to interact with other people. And she said, these are going to be the people that you inevitably socialize with. And down the road, these are the people you're going to work with. And had she not done that, I don't think I'd be sitting here talking to you today. Well, wow. well, thank you for clearing that up about the ear infection. We'll we'll try and get the internet to correct that. If not, they'll have to listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so after graduating from Hempstead High, you received a bachelor's degree from Columbia and then a Juris Doctor degree from Hofstra Law School. You worked in the Queens District Attorney's Office for two years, and in 1985, you were selected by the Democratic Party to fill the unexpired New York State Senate term of Leon Bogues, who passed away later. Later that year, you were overwhelmingly elected to that Senate post. The New York State Legislature is known for its tough environment and bare-knuckled politics. 
What was it like for you to enter the legislature as a young man who was visually impaired and African-American? Well, it was a an exciting time because there was a lot of social activism. There were still protests against the apartheid conditions in South Africa. There were uh, disputes about uh, whether or not uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgendered people, they didn't use all those terms then, could receive equal employment in New York State. There were a number of hate crimes, the Howard Beach case where three African-American men went into a pizza parlor in um, Howard Beach, Queens, and were then chased out, and um, uh, two of them uh, were injured, but one ran onto the Grand Central Parkway and was hit by a car when the mob was pursuing him. So that was a big case. And issues involving child sexual abuse were coming to light. And um, I was able to pass legislation that told the statute of limitations. The statute of limitations on crimes was five years. But if you were sexually abused when you were eight, and the abuse was probably still in your midst when you're 13, there's no way that you had a real chance. But if the statute didn't start running until you were 21, now as an adult, you could bring those actions against the abuser. So there were a lot of great issues to work on. And I really tried to not only get involved in on the issues of my district, which was Harlem in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, but issues all around the state. And I think it was that willingness to get involved in situations outside my catchment area that gave me the opportunity to pursue offices uh, that were in bigger areas than I represented when I first entered the state Senate. Right. So so you were subsequently reelected to that Senate seat for a remarkable 10 consecutive terms. And in 2002, you were chosen as state Senate minority leader, becoming both the first non-white state legislative leader and the highest ranking black elected official in the history of New York. What were the skills that allowed you to achieve that type of success? Well, I think that um, there was a lot of consternation. We were in the minority, the Democrats in the Senate, and the Democrats had been in the minority for about 70 years. And when we would run elections, we'd get one-tenth of the money that Republicans got. So, you know, we didn't have a very good chance of winning. But what the two leaders who preceded me, both of them were friends of mine, but what they did was they took the money, divided it up between the candidates, and actually thought that they were going to win all these seats at once. That was impossible. And finally, um, there were some accusations about some uh, issues that the leader had gotten into. And I was talked into running for leader. And when I became the leader, what I did was I took the little money we had and quietly only gave it to the candidates I thought could win, three or four of them at a time. Um, You can't win 20 seats at a time when you have one-tenth of the money. But you can win if you put your resources in places where your opponent is weak. So we won three seats back in 2004, three seats back in 2006. And then as governor, I put the money up for the last two seats we won in 2008, and that put the Democrats in the majority. 
Now that I'm the governor and the Democrats are in the majority, they were the biggest pains in my neck for the next two years, showing that if you save someone's life, you've made a permanent enemy. <laughs> Voltaire wrote that years ago. I don't want to take credit for that. Of course not. So that's a good lesson. In, uh, you don't want to spread uh, your resources too thin and uh, devote uh, you know, those resources to things that you can and know you can win. Right. And, uh, yep. So let, let's pause a moment in your fascinating life story to address a very personal question. All the phases of your life required intensive reading, whether it was the course materials during your student days, documents during your years with the district attorney's office, or the many detailed pieces of legislation you handled during your political career. You dealt with all of these before we had desktop computers with reading tools and apps for the visually impaired. So how did you read and absorb all the detailed printed material that were put on your desk? I can't say that I did. Uh, what I certainly was able to do was to hire some staff members who sort of were of the same ilk and opinion as myself on a lot of areas. And they did a lot of reading and then um, they sort of uh, what they call in the law digested it. In other words, they would tell me basically what I needed to know. And then I would record a lot of what they said because it was hard to remember it all. And it, I was, I thought, remarkably proficient using my staff members to do the reading because I incurred a great deal of difficulty in college and law school because when I was in high school, they, they knew what the curriculum was going to be at the beginning of the semester. So they had these organizations like Recordings for the Blind and American Foundation for the Blind had a reading service called The Talking Book. And they often had some of these books available or could record them for you. And you had time to get them read over the summer, let's say, before the fall semester began. Now you're in college and you're in, in law school where um, the main books of the courses might be available, but that would basically be about it. A lot of your research in college and, and law school is in the library, and that was very difficult for me. And I wasn't even with readers who were available. The amount of material was just too much. So I had a real problem with that in, in uh, college and law school. But now that I was in the state Senate and I have uh, a staff of six or seven people, I could pay people basically to get the information that I needed that would be most important for me. And it worked out spectacularly. It, it was, it amazed me because I was afraid of the process when I first got elected, as you described, looking at it in toto. But I really had some great people around me um, who helped me consume the information. And now all I really had to do was to uh, use it in debates in the legislature or at community meetings around the area. And that was probably one of the more enjoyable experiences that I had because now I was as prepared as anyone else when I went to these forums. So there are now there are many resources available for the blind and visually impaired. Um, we at Miami Lighthouse teach computer literacy to our blind and visually impaired clients of all ages. 
and they learn to use devices and programs that connect them to people around the world, internet websites around the world. What what assistive devices do you currently employ um, in your everyday life? In my everyday life these days, oddly enough, I haven't taken as much advantage of the um, the opportunities that you present. I may have to come down to the Miami Lighthouse and work with you a little bit because um, I still have the capacity to rely on uh, research that I can have done, you know, within my organization where I work and and the company that I run now. But there are certain times when I'm at a, a, a loss for information. And of course, the uh, capacity to use Google and um, some of the other services just to get the beginning of the information. And if I see that I need more, uh, then I, I use it. It's, it's an area that I did not, I'd say, fully embrace in uh, my time since I left government. Well, you have an open invitation to come and join us at Miami Lighthouse and maybe maybe take a class and get you up to speed on some of the new technology out there. I'll tell you what, uh, the, the listeners can't see this, but I've got a big smile right now because uh, I think I'd actually like to do that. <laughs> Wonderful. Let's get back to your uh political career. In 2006, you stunned the New York political establishment when you agreed to run for the office of lieutenant governor on a ticket with gubernatorial candidate Elliot Spitzer. This decision was particularly surprising because the Democratic Party was poised to win the majority in the New York legislature, which would have positioned you to become Senate majority leader, which you had mentioned that, uh, you know, you had a big role in playing a part of. So what led you to the decision to run for lieutenant governor with with Governor Spitzer? Well, I, I must say you have done some exquisite research because that was exactly the controversy because after winning six seats from the Republicans who were eight seats ahead, and it was just going to take two or three more to basically finish them off for a while. People were stunned when I accepted uh, Governor Spitzer's invitation. The reason I accepted his invitation was in 2004, I totally stunned the Republicans. They couldn't believe the seats that I beat them where and where I beat them. And I knew that in 2006, they weren't going to let me get away with it again. In fact, a, a, a Republican who was in the Senate at that time, who later worked with me in the governor's office first for Governor Spitzer, and then he worked directly for me. He once told me at dinner, we called you the duck. You always were floating around the pond, being very nice to everybody. But meanwhile, under the surface, you were churning. You were um, organizing these campaigns and you completely shocked us. And we were ready for you in 2006. And then you signed on with Spitzer and um, Attorney General Spitzer put a lot of money into campaigns and he put the money into the campaigns in 2006. So in that respect, the Republicans really couldn't stop us from using as much money as they had. And then um, we won another three seats. And then in 2008, we beat them. I could not have won those seats without Spitzer's help. Now, I asked for the help, but he wanted me to be his lieutenant governor. And finally, 
we made the agreement that uh, I would be his lieutenant governor if he, number one, helped me with the Senate races in 2006. And then number two, we both agreed, and looking back on this, you'll get a kick out of it. We both agreed that Hillary Clinton would probably be elected president in 2008. And when Hillary Clinton was elected president, that would vacate her Senate seat. And I said to Governor Spitzer, I'll sit around and hold your coat for a couple of years because that's all lieutenant governors do. But in 2008, when Hillary Clinton becomes president, I would hope you would appoint me to that Senate seat. Whereupon Governor Spitzer said something to me that will ring in my ears for the rest of my life. Stay out of trouble and we'll take care of it. Well, I stayed out of trouble, but he didn't. And by the time the seat became available, when Hillary Clinton was named Secretary of State by President Obama, I was the one naming the new senator. <laughs> wow, what a what an incredible story. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so in your time as lieutenant governor, you served as Governor Spitzer's chief negotiator with the New York legislature, relying on your own relationships with state legislators. In 2008, Governor Spitzer became embroiled in a scandal and resigned from office. Following his resignation, you were sworn in as the 59th governor of New York, becoming the first African-American visually impaired chief executive of any state. Your term was marked by a progressive agenda that addressed a number of controversial issues, including same-sex marriage and New York's response to the fiscal crisis of 2008. What were some of your proudest achievements? Within two months of the time that I got in office, I was able to issue an executive order that recognized same-sex marriages in the five or six states outside of New York uh, that had ratified same-sex marriage. And we did it under the full faith and credit clause of the United States Constitution, which the Republicans said they were going to challenge. But then I think when they looked in the law, they realized they couldn't. And I was particularly uh, happy to um, lower the playing field for minority and women-owned businesses, which combined had only 5% of New York State's procurement. And uh, women who were 51.8% of the population were getting 2.63% of the state contracts, even though they had... 29.2% of the bill of the companies that were certified to do business with the state were women owned and the numbers for minorities were even worse. So that was a big change that, that I really uh, enjoyed, you know, being a part of. And then we had a situation where um, I wanted to appoint a Lieutenant governor and was told by everyone that I couldn't do it, but I did it anyway. And it was a big court case, and they kept saying, he's going to lose, he's going to lose. And I lost in the state court. I lost in the appellate court. I lost in the appellate division. But the New York State Court of Appeals upheld my decision, and that broke 200 years of debate as to whether or not a governor could appoint his own lieutenant governor if there was no lieutenant governor. And, of course, there was none because Spitzer had left, and the former lieutenant governor, who was myself, had become governor. So... Those were some of the the uh, moments that I was um, I was most proud of, and even years later, when I look back on 
the efforts that we made at that time, I'm very proud of them. And they're still in place, I'm sure. One of the most widely publicized incidents uh, while you were governor was when Saturday Night Live satirized you in a weekend update skit. You described the -the over-the-top comedic portrayal of you as, quote, offensive to all persons with disabilities, end quote. The National Federation of the Blind also criticized the skit, calling it absolutely wrong and an attack on all blind Americans. You made a subsequent appearance on Saturday Night Live and got the last laugh and an apology. Is all forgiven? And do you hold any lingering feelings about this incident? Well, what I would say is that I know that I'm blind and I know that uh, my blindness, you know, uh, is, you know, sometimes an obstacle, but the characterization of me in those skits would have been just funny if it was someone who's blind and he bumps into a wall now and then or something like that. But they were associating blindness with a sense of stupidity. And so they had the character uh, unable to understand things that was said to him, uh, you know, talking out of line and out of turn looking like someone that was really a crackpot more than a governor. And while they could make jokes about me, I had a job, but there are 37 million disabled people in this country, many of them suffering from uh, blindness or limited vision, low vision. And I was afraid that that type of atmosphere was being projected by Saturday Night Live and would be heard by employers who would be more resistant to hiring blind people. And we have a blindness unemployment rate at the time of 69%. So I thought that it really wasn't funny. And I um, uh, fought them for about two years about this as they continued to do it. And then finally, a dear friend of mine named Jeff Green said to me, "Uh, listen, you fought the good fight. You really highlighted the issue of how the disabled are treated as inferior people, not just for their disability, but as if uh, they have other problems in addition to their disability that make them that way. Go on Saturday Night Live and give it back to them. So I went on Saturday Night Live and I offered the quote, you made so much fun of me for being blind that I forgot I was black. (laughs) So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they, uh, they, um, you know, apologized to me for the show. And I think it took another 10 years for uh, another uh, victim of their satire to get an apology. But I got the first one ever on Saturday Night Live. And that particular episode has been shown five times over the years. It's tied for the record of the, you know, most rebroadcast episodes. And I'm really glad I got talked into it because... When I was able to get on the stage and speak for myself, I sensed a real feeling of relief. Well, that that's amazing. And uh, we definitely commend you for your efforts in raising awareness about that topic. So thank you. You retired from elected office in 2010. And since then, you've been a talk show host, an adjunct professor at New York University, and a faculty member at Toro College. 
You have served as chairman of the New York State Democratic Party, a member of the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, and a consultant to the National Federation of the Blind. As an achiever and a trailblazer, what advice would you give to our listeners who are visually impaired and to their families? I think that the issue of disability relates to more than just the disability itself. So it relates to how the person feels about themselves, how they're treated by other people. So I remember, let's go back to maybe some of the younger people who might happen to hear this broadcast. Um, I was a very popular kid in school. I was a class president, I remember, in the sixth grade. And we had a school play, I think, in the seventh grade. And I was the lead actor and that kind of thing. And then we got to the part of life that becomes more social, where there are parties and you're not home at six o'clock, staying home every night. And I felt I was never really invited because I wasn't seen as a complete human being. I was seen as someone who people really liked and he's funny and he's smart and, and that type of thing. But um, that was a very difficult time for me to go through, not feeling like a part of of the um, community within the school and uh, obviously not being invited to the, the social events. And it had an effect that I think I didn't, you know, recognize until I was much older. And the way to address it is just to simply get people you know, or do it yourself and say, hey, listen, uh, you know, I heard you're having something. Uh, you know, we've always been friends. I, don't, I want to understand why I wasn't invited, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And um, I was, I think, too guilt-ridden or frightened to be that direct about the message. Then you have the, uh, uh, the issue of how people react to your independence. So when I got to Columbia University, I learned how to ride the subways. I could ride the subways all over the city. I could get all the way back to Long Island where I grew up. And um, I don't know that that was particularly appreciated. People thought that, um, that I was um, taking too many chances or putting myself at risk. But if, if you're feeling as if you're at risk for your whole life, you're never going to live your life. And um, I mean, obviously I was fortunate I didn't have any um, bad incidents other than getting lost a number of times. And so I think that it's many of the issues that people with a, a lot of different disabilities, but particularly with blindness often face, is uh, this perception that... Um, that I think started with Helen Keller, who wasn't allowed to marry when she wanted to, that um, you're not f a full citizen just like everyone else who wants to get married or uh, have uh, physical relationships with other people. And I think it it is something that parents of disabled children should understand. They are just like everyone else. They just happen to have a disability, but their feelings and their desires and their goals and, and the timetables for the goals should be just like anybody else's. 
maybe sometimes it takes a little longer. Uh, maybe such as like myself, th there's a maturation process you have to go through before you start to stand up for yourself. And I, I hope that the parents and those who might be listening in who suffer from blindness or maybe even some other disabilities recognize that you are still every bit as much an individual as every other member of society, and you deserve to be treated that way. Wow. Well, that's a wonderful message to end our podcast on. So thank you, Governor Patterson, for sharing your remarkable experiences. You mean we're done? We're done. We're done. But you're gonna come. You're gonna come to Miami. So I'm uh, gonna have to come to Miami. We're we're not done with you. Thank you. <laughs> we, we 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 have an expression at Miami Lighthouse that it's possible to see without sight, and your life clearly proves the truth of that adage. And we appreciate the time and the insights you've shared with us here today. So thank you. Well, I must say you asked some penetrating questions, and they really got me to dig down deep and say a few things that, you know, I don't know how many other times I've said it. So uh, anytime you uh, have a little empty space and you want me to fill it, please call. Thank you, Governor. Take care. You are listening to Vision Insights, a podcast series produced by Miami Lighthouse for the Blind and Visually Impaired. My name is Cameron Sisser. I welcome your questions, comments, and suggestions about this podcast series by contacting me at C-S-I-S-S-E-R at MiamiLighthouse.org. You can also follow us on social media by searching on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for Miami Lighthouse. Vision Insights is brought to you by LighthouseShop.org. Do you or do you know someone suffering from vision loss? Visit lighthouseshop.org for all your low vision needs, from magnifying glasses to solar shields to talking watches. Lighthouseshop.org is there for you.